Welcome to the Voice of Retail for the week of July 22nd, 2019. I'm your host, Michael LeBlanc, and this podcast is brought to you in conjunction with Retail Council of Canada. In this episode, we head to Western Canada for three different perspectives in and around the retail industry. First, we put the farmer back in the farm-to-fork retail conversation with an exclusive interview featuring Sherilyn Jolly-Nagel, a farmer from Mossbank, Saskatchewan. We talk ag tech and how farmers can and should become a bigger part of the food conversation. Next, recorded live in Victoria, I check in with retailer Bobby Anson, founder and owner of Heritage Linens and RCC longtime board of directors member, as he gets ready to pass the torch to his daughter after 25 interesting years. Then off to Winnipeg for the big picture perspective with RCC's Prairie Director John Graham. We do a quick scan of the key issues with retailers based or operating in Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta. Finally, we'll cover off retail this week with the top retail stores in Canada, U.S., and around the world, including L.L. Bean opening their first Canadian store, Couchetard buys into Fire and Flower, Stitch Fixed Katrina Lake predicts all retailers will be tech company in 10 years. But first, let's listen to my interview with Sherilyn. Sherilyn, welcome to The Voice of Retail. How are you doing today? I'm fine, thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. So we're at the Globe and Mail's future... Canada Future Forward Summit, and uh, you talked eloquently about a number of issues uh, from your perspective as, as a farmer. So I thought that would be a great conversation to have for my audience of retailers, because connecting where the food comes from in this ecosystem of how it gets onto the table, that farm-to-fork discussion. So you touched on a couple of issues. So first of all, tell us about yourself and what you do for a living. Yeah, so I'm a farmer from Mossbank, Saskatchewan. If you look that up on the map, it's so central of the mm. province, just a couple hours from the U.S. border. You, by the way, you had the best line, easy, hard to spell, easy, <laughs> easy to, draw. to draw. I love that. That, that is Saskatchewan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, my family's been farming in the Mossbank area for more than 100 years, mm. so we have pretty deep roots when it comes to agriculture. I, I shared my story today with the audience of uh, growing up on a farm but having no appreciation for it and heading off and doing a myriad of other things that gave me some life experience and from those experiences I learned how good I really have it. The grass is greener on the other side I suppose. Sure. So I'm back home farming with my husband and we're raising two daughters on the, a grain farm. We grow chickpeas and lentils, we grow canola, and we grow durum wheat, and this year we added barley back into the rotation. So we're having a ton of fun growing crops today, and there's no shortage of things to talk about from the weather and what Mother Nature might throw our way, and the markets, and farming is fun today. So you... you, um you told us how many acres, and then you put it in the context of football fields. So tell tell us how many acres. And you're, you're absolutely right. It's hard to dimensionalize acres, but putting it into a football field was pretty genius. So yeah, how I, big is your farm? I really enjoy talking with a non-farming public. Mm. You know, as farmers, we tend to you know jump into our own silo and, and discuss things amongst each other. But I thoroughly enjoy sharing agriculture stories with the public. And I soon realized how much jargon we use that the public is not... <laughs> We, uh, comfortable with it. We stole some of your jargon. We talk about <laughs> silos in business, but yeah. you, you actually have silos. We actually right? have silos. <laughs> yeah, so I, I try to be cognizant to not use terminology that my audience may not be familiar with. And a really good way to describe land bases is through football. I mean, uh, I live in Saskatchewan, so yeah. naturally I'm a Saskatchewan Go Rough, Rough Rider Riders, fan. Yeah. Go, Go Rough Riders. Riders. Uh, so I explained today that one acre is roughly the size of a football field. Mm-hmm. So we're farming 18,000 acres. Wow. So it's good imagery to know it's about 18,000 football yeah. fields. It's really, and, and it really helped me dimensionalize the size, right? Because you say acres, 18,000 acres, I know it's a lot. 
now I know exactly how much it is. Yeah. One of the themes you touched on um, is the tech, how technology has changed farming in, in very short order and very dramatic ways. Everything from you know the, the products you use, the predicting of the weather, and also just this. I think you mentioned self-driving combines. Mm-hmm. Talk about how that's changed your life as a, as a farmer. I, I really believe that agriculture is one of the most technologically advanced industries on the globe. And we always have been. We've always adopted new innovation, whether we made it ourselves on the farm. You know, farmers are very innovative people, very resourceful, or whether we adopted, you know, the latest, newest and latest science technology. And even in my short farming career, I've experienced tremendous growth when it comes to the advancements of technology. It's a super exciting industry to be in right now. We've got drone technology that measures infrared in our in our fields. We're, we still happen to be old school and we crop check, you know, on a motorbike <laughs> or on foot or on a truck. Uh, but a lot of that new technology is being used to crop check. We have seed genetics that I could not be more grateful for. Uh, I'm not a better farmer than my dad or generations before us, but we have better seed genetics, better technology in general. So that what, allows what does us that to mean? They're more, more pest resilient? They're more. What well, is that look at really? drought tolerance, for example. Right. When you live in Mossbank, Saskatchewan, we have just now, up in, with the exception of one week ago, we mm. were in our third year of a drought. Mm. And we were still able to pull off yields that were unheard of in my dad's time. So we have been the beneficiaries of a lot of new seed technology. Uh, I talked a little bit today. You can't have an urban audience and not talk about GMOs. Sure. So I talked about growing genetically modified canola, what that's done for our operation, and, and tried to take out some of the fear around mm. what GMOs really are. So that's certainly been a technological advancement. But like you said, even even predicting the weather, I st- we still have not... <laughs> done a good job predicting weather. However, we can measure it better. Mm. We used to really have to best guess uh, how much rain we we got, how much subsoil moisture there really was, what a plant was actually taking out of the soil. And now with soil probes uh, and weather stations in the field, we can actually measure that. We know how far down those canola roots have gone. We know the nutrients that they're taking out per hour sometimes in the field. Wow. It's exciting stuff. It, if, if any young person is interested in technology and science, agriculture should be on their radar. You mentioned uh, GMOs, so it's a good segue to my next question. Because in your, in your talk, you talked about, well, if I was to do this all over again, or what you're doing now is talking more about policy and things, uh, misinformation, information. Retailers always are thinking about what the consumer is looking for, and the consumer has a lot of voices at them. So what's your perspective around not just GMOs, but generally how farmers can shape policy and, and really consumers and retailers' understanding of, of modern agriculture and the food that they eat? Yeah, I think one of my biggest regrets is when I first entered the ag policy arena, I wanted to focus on issues that I thought were really relevant to my farm operation and may be preventing me from being profitable. So I focused on things like railway transportation and trade and, you know, really tangible things. And I admittedly intentionally ignored the bubbling issue around public trust. Mm. I really thought it was a waste of my time to answer questions from, uh, you know, an ignorant public as I Mm. thought, you know, why would I want to answer questions around pesticides and GMOs? The answers are so obvious, they'll figure it out. And, you know, I realize now that that was a a big mistake on my part, that it's my job to answer these kinds of questions. And, 
I guess I had an epiphany. You know, I have Facebook too, or farmers have, are on Facebook and social sure. media too, and all of these, you know, really crazy conversations were popping up around the modern agricultural tools we were using, like pesticides. And I realized that the choices that farmers make every day are a privilege. And I used to look at that as my right. I'm a fourth generation farmer. You know, it is my right to farm this land the way I want to. And now I've changed my perspective. It is a privilege. And every decision that I make is surrounded by privilege and if I don't do a good job communicating why I need these tools they can be taken away and we've seen so many examples of that in you know in, in Europe uh, they certainly don't have the same discretion that farmers have here in, in Saskatchewan and in Canada to make the choices we need to make so I consider it a mission to answer questions from the public in an honest and transparent way so that they can you know, begin to trust farmers again, trust science in their food, and allow us to be sustainable. You know, when we were talking earlier uh, this morning, you, you described how even the, the person working at the, the deli counter or the front line of retail was like your partner in this grocery or the food ecosystem? Absolutely. I spent, I've spent the last couple of years uh, with Farm and Food Care, and it's an organization whose sole mission is to connect consumers to farmers and, and have these kinds of discussions. Mm. And we had real dirt on farming training programs, and we reached out to farmers to give them a, a platform, a training mechanism, so they could learn how to communicate. And we had people showing up that weren't in primary production. We had you know truckers that mm. are trucking live livestock uh, or meat products or fruit and they were getting asked questions and then you have you know the meat cutter at your grocery store sure. that is feeling pretty left out because you know the mom that's, that's terrified of feeding her kids mm. hormones or antibiotics is asking the meat cutter what's in this product and what's happening right. how was it grown and, so, he, and he or she might just reference back to what Facebook they read and, on and Facebook yeah you know I, I was listening to uh, Tim Cook from Apple yesterday did his commencement speech. I think it was. I was reading it yesterday. I think he did last week. Called Facebook the Chaos Factory because hmm. it's just this massive influx of information, valid or no, right? And it's really it's a great point because if you're not there to provide the information, someone else will, right? Yeah, and and we haven't we haven't done a good job of. Uh, acknowledging our partners in the industry, and I would say mm. the retails and the groceries, the restaurants, the again the truckers, yeah. the meat food cutters, service, the frontline people, the food sure. service people. How many times yeah. does a waiter or waitress get asked what's in food today? And we have never mm. reached out to them to answer their questions. So again, it's another, it's kind of the weight of the world on our shoulders. But we're trying to do a better job supporting the people who partner with us. The federal government uh, recently issued a, a food policy guideline. They're trying to figure out food in this country. What, what role do farmers have in, in shaping food policy and, and making... I think part of it... You know, I was listening to Sylvain Charlebois who talks often about food policy. And he was saying, well, it's not much of a policy at all. I mean, how are we, we going to have... How are we going to feed Canadians? How are we going to have innovation in farming? What's, what's your perspective representing farmers around food policy? What needs to happen that uh, you would recommend that both retailers and politicians think about in terms of food policy and, and farmers? You know, the, the challenge when you bring politics into an industry, especially like agriculture, is we don't have a high population. Mm. Less than 2% of Canadians are farming today. So it is difficult sometimes to get politicians to 
understand and listen to a very few voice. There's there's very few of us that are sure. doing this. So they are, I think they feel obligated to listen outside of the production about how to generate, how to build this policy sure. and I'm not opposed to that but of the far- of the farmers that I know there's only a handful of us that are interested in policy mm-hmm. no different than me really not being interested in the mechanics of an operating combine I am interested in the policy side of it so we are you know doing the best job we can through organizations like the Western Canadian Wheat Growers Association mm-hmm. the Global Farmer Network where we're policy focused and we're trying to reach out to politicians Politicians that are in charge of influencing these major decisions are no different than the waiter or the waiter waitress that are disconnected from agriculture. Yeah. Canadians are now at least two generations removed from the family farm. That includes our politicians, our teachers, our our lawyers, our bankers. The bankers that are lending, you know, farmers money are also disconnected. So this is a continuous job for us. Those policymakers need support and communication from farmers about what we need. And uh, no question that Canadian farmers are contributing on a very global scale to providing food for the world to eat. I'm very proud to say that. Well, you know, you're, you're an eloquent spokesperson for the, for an entire industry, and, and you're right, there's not many of you, so uh, congratulations on, on your role and being here today. And if um, my listeners, retailers, want to get in touch with you or learn more, how could they uh, reach out to you? Or, or I would more? love that. I've, I've, I've built a website. It's SherilynJolly-Nagel.com. Okay. I'm also on Twitter, at Sherilyn Nagel, Facebook, you know, cell phones. You can find me, yeah. and it's my job to get back to you and answer your questions, but I would really really love to reach out to any of the retail companies that that need a stronger farmer voice or need a connection back to some of the things we grow on our farm. Fantastic. I think you'd be an eloquent spokesperson. Thanks for spending time with The Voice of Retail and uh, hope you enjoy your rest of the time here in Toronto. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for listening. My pleasure. Bob, welcome to the Voice of Retail podcast. How are you doing today? Very good, thank you. Good to be here. Tell me a little bit about your personal journey and how you got to where you are in your as a retail. So how did we start this journey? Well, uh, the company has been in existence now for going on, we're almost at 25 years. Hmm. Uh, March, so March of 2021 will be 25 years in business. It's been a journey. How did we get here? Well, my background was I started out with Woodward's back in the 70s, spent uh, 15 years at Woodward's various places, Calgary, Mm. Vancouver, Victoria. Mm. Um, When Woodward's was going out of business, I was approached by Pacific Linen to make a move to the U.S., which I went ahead and did. Mm. Spent two years in the U.S. In the meantime, I'd been building a business strategy for Ireland Linens. And after Woodward's went out of business and Pacific Linen tried to go public and it was not successful and they filed for Chapter 11, I figured that if uh, working for other people going broke, I may as well give it a shot myself. (laughs) So... We made the move back to Canada hmm. and sought out this location for Ireland Linens, and that's where the journey began. Now, were you born and raised in Victoria? Is that where? You, how did you wind up in this city? No, actually, I'm I'm actually from the interior of BC, hmm. but I attended University of Victoria mm-hmm. for a couple of years. My wife is from Victoria, and when I dropped out of university, I joined Woodward's and started my career with the department store here hmm. in Victoria. So I have roots here. 
and I've spent certainly the most of my life has been here. So you came back to Canada, started a store in, in Victoria. Tell me about that. That was how many years ago now? Twenty, Almost 25 years ago. And it was most interesting because we emulated a lot of the ideas that I learned from Woodward's and from Pacific Linen. Hmm. Some things that both companies did well, but uh, being profitable was not one of them. Right. And I've since found out after I've launched Heirloom Linens that they say 80% of uh, businesses are gone in the first five years. Mm. And of the remaining 20%, 80% of them are gone in the next five years. Mm. So we've bucked a trend. And yes, it was not without its pitfalls. There was times sure, that we sure. were very close to doing exactly the same thing. Mm. But uh, we persevered and we got through it. We um, at one point opened a second location, which turned out to almost be our demise. We mm. almost It almost put us out of business. Mm. And I think that in hindsight, had we not opened the second store under a different company name, it potentially would have brought down the whole company. Hmm. So that was thankfully 10 years ago. I shudder to think about it. And I don't want to go back to there again. Yeah. I'm asked if we're going to open a second location. My response is not a chance. We're going to live with one and try and do one well. So tell me about the store. When you're out uh, buying and looking for merchandise, who are you buying for? What, what's the kind of product and, and what's your, what's your go-to-market strategy? Well, our goal is that First of all, we bill ourselves as probably having one of the largest assortments of bedding on Vancouver Island. Mm. So our strength is in our breadth of our assortment. It may not be in the depth of our assortment. We try and offer the customers a broader choice. Uh, we try and expand on that with our website. We offer many patterns that aren't available in-store or available mm. as an online exclusive. So that has been our goal. Um, our slogan since we opened has been we only sound expensive. Unfortunately, the heirloom linen's name has a connotation of price, and we realized mm. as soon as we opened that, in fact, that was a mistake. Mm. And we had to re reset ourselves probably in the first eight or nine months that we opened, and we gave up on the strategy of high-low pricing and instead said we're going after everyday low pricing. Mm. Now, the challenge with everyday low pricing is the consumer doesn't believe the fact that you're not going to lower the price still. Yeah, particularly and, in your category, right? Oh, it's kind of, that's the very common thing in your category. The department stores have... Um, have convince the consumer that 15, 60, and 70% off is the norm. Yeah. Yeah. And frankly, I'm appalled. I've, uh, I thought the consumers in Canada were brighter than that, but I unfortunately, department stores have proved me wrong. Hmm. I, I thought it was going to go away a decade ago or more. And it, it was in my sense, I thought maybe it was, you know, Walmart would come in your 80s and they're more EDLP. They do some high-low pricing. But I thought that would reset the market, but it really hasn't. No, it hasn't. And so that's been the challenge. And today's consumer, they still will look at a department store pricing and say, you know, it's 70% off at so-and-so. Well, that's terrific. But do you think they ever sold anything at the regular price? All right. That's, that's always been my bone of contention. Sure, sure. So you mentioned um, a second store. Not a second physical store, but you have a website, which is quite active. Tell me about uh, the website and, and how, what kind of business you do on it. Because uh, I see when I, I go there that you have rates to ship to the U.S. Do you get a lot of customers from around Canada and around the world? Well, I'm going to tell you, first of all, that the Heirloom Linens website, uh, we were an early adopter of uh, web business. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember the very first website, I actually built it. Mm. I find that hard to believe nowadays, but yeah. that's how we started. Right. And we grew uh, quickly. Uh, our growth in uh, online sales has been double-digit virtually every year since we've opened. That's mm. where the growth in retail is occurring. I'm convinced that bricks and mortar, I still need a presence, but it's yeah. the clicks that are bringing home the sales. Yeah. Uh, having said all of that, um, we launched, we've had several iterations of the website. Uh, we've had to become better, mm. fraud prevention. We have to sure. become, make it easier for the consumer to shop. But mm -hmm. our website has been uh, a driving force behind our business. 
And we're convinced that most people that shop our store, in fact, have already shopped our website before they come in. What do you think is the secret um, for independent retailers uh, uh, online? It, you know, I talk to a lot of independent retailers who launch websites, and, and their success is, is not always as strong as yours. What's, what's made it so successful for you? Well, I've been asked that question a lot, and, and to be brutally honest with you, uh, our website growth has been primarily organic. Hmm. I've had limited success with the likes of Google AdWords and retargeting promotions. Our success has just been word of mouth. We have a tremendous repeat customer base that comes back and comes mm. back and comes back. So from my perspective, that's how we've that's that's what we've done to promote it. Now, in addition, all print advertising, all television advertising, any marketing we do, we always tie it back to www.heirloomlinens.com. And it sounds like you merchandise the online store differently. So you do really treat it like a second store in, in effect, right? We, in fact, do. Now, we've now recently launched uh, a new arm of the company, which mm. happens to be Heirloom Luxury Linens. Mm. And our rationale is that if the first store is all we only sound expensive, I have a tough time justifying to that customer that I'm now selling duvet covers that are seven, eight, nine hundred $900. Right. So... That mm. has been a challenge. So we felt the only solution was instead of trying to bastardize what we already had been successful with, yeah. let's just launch a new, and it's going to be website only. Mm. So we launched uh, two months ago. Uh, the goal now is to get some uh, to get some traction with business. Yeah. But it is uh, getting some uptick, which is fantastic. Mm, We're fantastic. selling product. And so your price point on that, the the the, the uh, strategy there, it's a higher end price point, higher end product than what you would find in the store. Is that the essence of, of both the higher strategy? end? Product and higher-end price. They go hand-in-hand. Hand. Sure, sure. But we also now have the luxury of being able to discount. So, for example, we mm. can take a line of product and say it's 20% off, which we won't do right. at Heirloom Linens. Well, it's, it's a great strategy because it doesn't confuse the brand that you've built. You work so hard to build that, you know, what is your brand today. So 25 years in the business, if I put um, a list on the wall of businesses that were around 25 years ago that aren't around today, it would be a pretty long list. I can think of some pretty big names. Um, what's been the key to your success? You've talked about, you know, smart expansion and, you know, it's not always been easy. But as you look af as you look back over the 25 years, what lessons have you learned? What's what's different? A different way of saying it, what's different today in modern retail and, and was 20 years ago, 25 years ago? Well, definitely we've got the number of competitors has diminished. Mm-hmm. But having said that, we've also gained a lot of new competitors with online strategies. Yeah, so, you, you outlasted the, the big, you know, yeah. put a long name of them up, Eaton's, Sears, Home Outfitters, you've outlasted them all, right? That's absolutely the case, but we've also lost a lot of vendors. There's been a big consolidation mm. in the vendor community, too. Mm. So now it becomes an issue where how do we differentiate ourselves, how do we look different than our competitors? Sure. And that has been the problem. Now, up till now, we would have said, let's go back to the U.S. and let's seek out more U.S. suppliers. Mm. The problem is that with the exchange rate and import duties and stuff, the U.S. is not particularly attractive to Canadian retailers right now. Mm. So we are attempting to stick with our stick with our Canadian suppliers and uh, carry on as best we can. Mm. At one point, we may be south of the border, but I'm, sure. I'm reluctant to go that route. So in your mind, has the consumer changed over these, these decades, or what's, what's the biggest change in retail? Obviously, online didn't exist in a meaningful way 20 years ago, a little bit, but not so much. What's, what's different today? Like, let me ask the question differently. Um, and it's kind of a, uh, if you were to start a business today, what would it look like? You're already starting a new one with, with heirloom luxury living. It, what, would you, <laughs> what would you do different today? than you would have done 20, 25 years ago? Well... If anything, because it could well, be... Well, no, you, several things we would have done differently. I, I know that 
We're fortunate in that we're in Victoria, so we have not had to deal with uh, cross-border shopping hmm. like a retailer in Vancouver would have to fight with. Sure. But that being said, online is open to anybody. Yep. And so we're fighting with everybody else for their dollars. Hmm. Back in the day, our online business, we used to do a very, very significant part of our business in the U.S. Hmm. That business has completely gone away. Hmm. Uh, I can't figure out why. We used to have a tremendous customer base in Texas and Florida, and uh, that they've now gone elsewhere, and I don't know why. I, mm. Nothing I can do about it. Right. The issue is that I have to look after my Canadian customers. Sure. So the other thing we've got going for us is that Victoria is a very um, it's a small town, even though it's a city, yeah. and there's a lot of uh, people are proud of the fact that we are a local company, mm. that we're independent. We've got a really loyal following of customers. Yeah. So from our perspective, that's been one of the biggest things we've had to contend with. Mm. Uh, the other uh, comment I have on online shopping is that today's online shopper has now narrowed the retailers down to the point where they can now search for product solely on price. Mm. Once they've determined, they've made their selection, be it showrooming, be it looking online, right. once they've made their decision, now it's a case of, okay, now we want what we want, who's got the best price? Mm. And it lowers everybody to that line, and that becomes an issue. Mm. Race to the bottom. And we used to say that back when we opened the company that the consumer would pay a percentage more for goods, mm. for customer service and product knowledge. Yeah. Nowadays, the customers can do all their own research online. Mm. For example, I sell a latex mattress line here in my store. Customers coming in to look at latex mattresses have already done their research, and they know almost as much about it as we do, and in some cases more. Mm. They've really done their homework. Right. So all they're coming in here is to have somebody reaffirm that what they read was in fact correct, mm. and is this the place to buy it? So the customers are more informed, more savvy than they were 20 years ago. Oh, significantly. So when they walk in the store, does it, do you find that when they walk in the store, though, they convert, if you look at conversion, they, they already know what they're here to buy, so you get the traffic that comes in, they're here to buy. They're less here to typically, shop or browse. Typically, they're here to buy. Yeah. Um, I mean, we still have the browser that comes in, but sure. I have many customers who are coming in and will stare at my assortment of duvet covers in the wall, hmm. and then they'll open up their phone and show them the three that they looked at online. They want to see these three. Right. And so that's, I, I have no yeah, problem with yeah, that. Yeah. It makes it easier for my sales staff. Yeah. They already know the pricing. They already know the product. They just want to see it for real. You know, we all know how successful Sears Catalog was in, hmm. in making things that weren't particularly attractive look really good in a photograph. That's right. And today's consumers completely understand that concept, yeah. and they want to see it and say, yes, that's what I thought it was going to look like. They want to put their hands on it, make sure it's real. And that's the other change in this business. It's hmm. become a real touchy-feely business. Huh. Back in the day, you could put sheets and duvet covers and throw it in the wall and put it on a shelf and then never had to yeah. worry about it. Nowadays, we've got to have them opened up and hanging. People want to touch them. They want to feel them. Hmm. It's tactile. Hmm. And the consumer is making a decision primarily on pattern, and secondarily on price. Hmm. Interesting. If the pattern isn't right, they don't care how much it is. Right. They'll keep looking. Keep looking. They'll keep looking. All right. Well, tell me what's next for you, because this is uh, 25 years in the business. You're, you're retiring from the business. Tell me a little bit about that. So our exit strategy. Yes. Um, we have a daughter involved in the business. Great. That um, if you'd asked me 10 years ago what my exit strategy was, mm. we're going to sell and retire. Mm. My daughter joined the company. Ten years ago, thereabouts. Kristen, right? Kristen. Yeah. She has uh, become, as my wife refers to her, as a mini-me. <laughs> She's taken the best of Bob. Well, hopefully it's the best and the best of my wife, Joan. And uh, she is truly uh, taking over for us. My oh, wife, fantastic. for the most part, works at home. Mm -hmm. uh, she works uh, remotely. She'll do the accounting. She'll look at some of the financials. 
I'm still behind the marketing. I mm-hmm. still play a role in IT because, after all, I am the IT guy. <laughs> and so Crescent is taking over the rest of it. So we are actually just finalizing our exit strategy, and I've now stepped back. I now work four days a week. Mm-hmm. And we have the capability with remote work from home. Sure, but sure. Whether I'm here or not is almost irrelevant. Right. So what are you going to spend your all that time? What are you going to do? What are, what are you going to do that you haven't done in the past uh, 20 years being a, an entrepreneur and a retailer? My wife and I love to travel. Mm-hmm. I'm a, some would say a rabid, but I'll say an avid photographer. Mm-hmm. So that's going to continue. I've got two grandchildren. Mm-hmm. There's all sorts of things to enjoy. All sorts of things. And while you have your health, that's when you have to do it. Yeah. Because that can change on a dime. Fantastic. And when it changes, you can forget about the travel. And yeah. So let's do it while we can. Fantastic. Well, listen, it's been a real treat spending time with you. Thanks. It's been great to visit your store here in Victoria. Uh, and thanks for spending time. Congratulations on your success, and I wish you nothing but the, the best in the years to come. Thanks very much. John, welcome to The Voice of Retail. Thanks so much for joining me. How are you today? Oh, terrific, Michael. Thanks for the opportunity to connect. Oh, it's, it's my pleasure. Listen, you and I know each other on a, a colleagues and on a, on a personal, but I thought what a great opportunity to, uh, to chat with you and your role at Retail Council Canada, uh, helping uh, retailers in the prairies understand uh, issues that are top of mind and that you deal with each and every day uh, in the prairie provinces. But why don't we start off a little bit about, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, your personal journey and what you, uh, what you did uh, to get to where you are today and, and what you do for Retail Council Canada. Well, sounds terrific, and I'll start from grade one and work my way up here. <laughs> uh, you know, and, uh, yeah, we got a couple hours, so yeah. Yeah, yeah, and then in grade three when Billy, no, no, I'd, uh, you know, then let's fast forward to early 20s when I began what has been almost a 30-year relationship in the retail sector, yeah. both uh, first with an advertising agency where I uh, uh, led the advertising um, programs for uh, malls and other retailers, some national, some regional regional west here, moved on then to uh, uh, a running a retail business, then ultimately 15 years with Safeway and representing the external interests of you know, $5 billion Western Canadian Canada Safeway, uh, leading up to and over the first couple of years of the acquisition by Sobe. So what do you do? Uh, you're based in Winnipeg. Um, and tell me a bit more about what you do on a on a day to day basis. What what ground do you cover, and and uh, where do you where do you range? Sure, you know, and I'm uh, over 22 months uh, with the Retail Council now, and uh, every day I'm fascinated by the diversity of issues uh, mm. that uh, touch the retail sector across the country, but in particularly across the prairies. And the reality is for a lot of our members, uh, especially those that are pl- playing in multiple provinces, they often don't have uh, eyes or a voice on a, in the prairies to represent their interests. And I get the great pleasure and honor of representing uh, retail interests across uh, Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and occasionally Nunavut and Northwest Territories when there's interest there as well. So I'm imagining... Um you probably have one of the biggest geographic spans. I guess Jim Cormier out the East Coast as well with the Maritime Provinces, but you've got a fairly vast part of land to cover. Let's let's take it. Um, let's do province by province if we could. Let's talk about uh, where you're based in Manitoba. Um, some new 
provincial government activity? And, and what are the top issues for retail? I know, you know, days of, of open and closing and on retail days of, you know, what open, uh, when retailers are open and closed is an issue in Manitoba. What are, what are you, the top issues in Manitoba from, uh, from our members' perspective and that you're, uh, you're engaged on the most? Yeah, in Manitoba, it's a fairly traditional province, and uh, you know, and the PC government uh, came in with a strong majority in uh, 2016, uh, and um, fixed election dates would have normally seen uh, Manitobans go back to the polls in October of 2020, but the premier, uh, premier opted to uh, call the election early, and so in fact, uh, this September 10th, uh, Manitobans will uh, likely uh, again send a uh, conservative government back to uh, govern and make ongoing improvements to remove red tape, to provide greater predictability within a business sector, and what we're hoping for is a bit of loosening of uh, some of the restrictions that are currently facing retail. So talk about those uh, restrictions that, uh, from our perspective, from retail's perspective, that, you, uh, that you'd like to see uh, yeah, talked well, about or addressed. Yeah, well, there's been some recent wins, of course, uh, in things for the those that sell uh, upholstery, uh, uh, furniture, uh, clothing. There's been a removal of uh, the Upholstered and Stuffed Articles Act uh, that uh, will have removed uh, almost 240 regulations from their business, uh, effective uh, January 1 of 2020, but effectively... Um, you know, in place now. And so that's a great win. Uh, we're excited that, um, that the Premier has talked about reviewing uh, restrictions around holiday hours, potentially reviewing Sunday hours, and, uh, and looking at ways to transfer some of the responsibilities of liquor uh, from what has been historically a government-run uh, business to looking increasingly to those that know retail best, retailers. Tell me about uh, shopping. Tell me about shopping hours in Manitoba. Is Sunday shopping a thing there, or is that is that not a thing in Manitoba? Well, uh, Sunday currently, depending on municipalities, can override provincial regulations, but uh, most municipalities across the province have uh, uh, permitted retailers and consumers, frankly, to be able to access those retail stores uh, from 9 to 6 p.m., and certain municipalities are concerned about um, any loosening of those hours. Some consumers aren't interested, but there's a whole majority. You know, research that uh, Retail Council participated in says that about 68% of Manitobans are uh, in favor or strongly in favor of deregulation of Sunday hours and empowering municipalities to, you know, put limitations if they wish to, but ultimately uh, allowing flexibility for retailers to adjust hours that best suit their consumers. And uh, so there's some discussion on that that we'll likely hear about post-election. Mm. Um, well, let's talk about, uh, let's, let's kind of continue our westwardly uh, track um, Saskatchewan. So I, I had the opportunity to interview a, uh, a Saskatchewan farmer, Charlene John Nagel, and she had this great line, hard to spell, easy to draw, uh, about Saskatchewan. <laughs> um, and I uh, never, never realized that until I looked at it, you know, Isolated, it is actually easy to draw. But how is it to do uh, retail in? How is Saskatchewan? I think it's really interesting times across the prairies, 
And, you know, you look at Ontario, New Brunswick as well, and if there were team jackets being handed out, I think we've got multiple provinces that are increasingly uh, collaborating, but also competitive. And so using uh, best practices of some provinces uh, to apply to their own or at least wanting to review. And that's where, going back to Manitoba, opportunities like privatization or enhanced privatization of liquor come into play. You know, they look across Saskatchewan, Alberta, Ontario discussions, uh, the Maritimes, B.C. There's been movement there. And and likewise, in Saskatchewan, there's an interest to be unique, <laughs> uh, but, uh, but uh, you know, in Saskatchewan pride, and that great pride about, uh, and their strong uh, endorsement of the rural roots and uh, being the underdog, but very much wanting to ensure that they're open for business. And we've seen some good, healthy debate on certain issues, uh, but uh, but some great progress. And we continue to be frustrated, though, in Saskatchewan with things like the uh, the way that um, a day is defined in, uh, you know, in that uh, uh, it really puts limitations on scheduling and has cost a retailer millions of dollars a year. And frankly, retail employees uh, forcing them, in some cases, those who are wanting to accumulate, like students, a lot of hours over weekends, having to take on double, two, three jobs just to get in eight hours over a 24-hour period. But, uh, but overall, you know, there's uh, some really um, good uh, understanding of the retail sector and uh, a desire to provide positive conditions. So we continue to work on issues like uh, the definition of a day and and un- nuance. Un- un- like, un- unpack that one for me a little bit. Tell me a bit more about the definition of a day. What's what's the uh, what's the definition of a day that's different in yeah, the, unique to North America, in fact, and uh, trying to sum up a two-hour conversation in one minute kind of thing, Michael. But uh, uh, but in most provinces, a day, a work day, resets itself at 12.01 a.m. In Saskatchewan, uh, the definition of a day is from the moment of the beginning of the first shift mm. through to a 24-hour clock. So if you're a student that takes on an eight-hour uh, shift on Friday afternoon and works late Friday but still wants to pick up some hours on Saturday sometime, uh, that those if you take on a shift at 4 p.m. till midnight, let's say for argument's sake, even though sure. hours might be slightly less, if you work any time before, any hours prior to 4 p.m. Saturday would be overtime. So condense that to a four-hour shift on a Friday and then an eight-hour shift throughout the day on Saturday because you want Saturday night off to hang out with friends. Uh, four of those hours on Saturday would be overtime. So you end up not scheduling the person at all on Saturday. Right. Uh, or, yeah, or you schedule them partially and then partial on Sunday, and uh, it uh, creates significant restrictions as opposed to the rest of Canada and frankly the rest of North America that defines it uh, resets itself at the top of a, a day 12.01 a.m. or simply you know, limits the number of hours you can work in a seven-day period. Where, where did that, I'm curious, I want to hang on this for a minute, where did that come from? Is that part of the agrarian background of, of, of Saskatchewan? Like what, what's the background of, of that uh, so unusual? Where did it come from to begin with? It 
it, it roots from the fact that uh, you know a few years ago, oil, uh, potash were all just humming, and the economies were robust, and uh, there was a shortage of labor, and concern that uh, that employees were being exploited uh, in their scheduling. Um, and so some of the restrictions that were put in place were uh, that, um, uh, you know, the number of hours in a day, which makes a ton of sense, uh, number of hours in a week makes great sense, uh, and this was written in as a way of uh, additionally ensuring that employees uh, were not uh, uh, taken advantage of. However, there's a realization now, I think, that uh, uh, that not only employees are losing opportunities to work, but it's also costing Saskatchewan businesses significantly compared to counterparts in other provinces. Right. You mentioned the uh, privatization of things like uh, like alcohol. Whenever I think of uh, Alberta, one of the things I think of first and foremost is their their forward looking. Uh, private sector approach to both uh, cannabis and uh, and to alcohol. What else is uh, top of mind in Alberta? New provincial government that must be keeping you busy, kind of meeting and greeting some new folks in the, in different chairs across the province. Yeah, we've had a great opportunity to meet uh, the uh, mi- a couple of the ministers, and uh, we'll continue to uh, make our introductions and ensure they're up to speed uh, on the retail sector. Uh, nearly a quarter of a million. Uh, Albertans work in the retail sector, uh, and just shy of 20,000 different retail locations across the province that were significant, especially in a, in, uh, depressed times where pipelines aren't being built and, and, yep. uh, those important jobs aren't being created or replaced. And, uh, it's, uh, very, encouraging to see the new government try to rebalance some of the regulations that were put in place by the previous government such as, and addressing significant costs such as the minimum wage it went up 50% over 4 years which is extremely difficult to manage uh, within an organization uh, there was some good innovation that was by some retailers but the fact is, it just layered on more costs, workers' compensation, new rules around uh, holiday uh, pay, and uh, the backs of retailers are very sore, and some of that weight around things like a uh, new uh, starting wage for those under 18 are encouraging ways to help bring youth back into the retail sector and providing them opportunities to learn and grow and hopefully further their careers in our, in our business or, or go on to other opportunities. I love uh, Carl Littler, our own Carl Littler's description in, in the, his analytical terms of it's the first and best attachment to the labor force, right? the youth getting their first job, part-time job. I think Alberta has now the highest um, minimum wage in the country, right? $15 an hour? That's right, yeah. And yeah. Uh, so the new government uh, isn't um, looking at reducing that. Uh, I think that it's kind of baked in now. Uh, what was introduced, though, as of uh, the end of June was a youth wage for mm-hmm. uh, students uh, that go to school uh, that earn will now earn thirteen dollars an hour, uh, and just helps discount that cost to bringing an inexperienced person into the business and helping them, uh, giving them the time to to 
learn the business and and gain experience. And I guess like um, you know Ontario, the Ontario's new government last year kind of put a hold on at fourteen. Mm-hmm. And uh, on a, on the whole, I think Retail Council of Canada would like to see minimum wage index to kind of um, inflation rate or some index like that. Is that is that the case? Really yeah, kind of- yeah. Uh, we've continued to uh, have great conversations with the governments across the prairies. Uh, I think all of the current governments get the fact that uh, mm-hmm. that uh, that minimum wage needs to be predictable, and predictability mm-hmm. and non-political is tying it to uh, consumer price index for that province, and uh, ensuring that uh, those and there are very few that um, earn minimum wage ultimately are. Our retail members uh, have some amazing jobs uh, in their businesses, but uh, mm-hmm. the wage needs to continue to escalate with the cost of the price index, but uh, but not just be politically driven up for right. the sake of a few votes. As you say, as you say, predictable. So, any any other issues in Alberta that are uh, top of mind? Anything lots else? of uh, lots of focus on where you, you know, on environmental. Mm-hmm. Issues. Uh, the for many years, the focus had has been in Alberta on other priorities: the economy, mm-hmm. uh, the pipeline, uh, the uh, some of the more uh, nuanced items across the province, and the focus is shifting, even under a you know essentially conservative government of Kenny, uh, is on making sure that some of the environmental issues are being dealt with too, similar to the extended producer responsibility uh, programs that you've seen pop up in various provinces across Canada. Alberta's got a bit of a catch-up, especially looking at the neighbor BC and Saskatchewan, frankly. And uh, so there's a lot of discussion around that, uh, as well as uh, making sure that red tape is being attacked. There's a commitment to reduce red tape by one third uh, mm. over the next four years uh, by the government. And that means a ton of opportunities uh, for our members and retail council to get in there and uh, take uh, some of the burden off uh, retailers that operate in Alberta that are currently uh, dealing with things that just are unnecessary to ensure uh, healthy work. There's no question you've got a full plate and a half as you uh, crisscross uh, our prairies. If members uh, listening to the podcast uh, are either based in the prairies or operate in the prairies and have any questions or issues they'd like to chat about with you specifically, how do they get a hold of you, John? Well, I always welcome a phone call anytime at 204-926-8624. Or if it's more convenient, uh, an email at jgram at retailcouncil.org. Perfect. I'll put that uh, I'll put that in the show notes as well. Uh, listen, it was a real treat catching up with you. Uh, thanks uh, for bringing us uh, the insights from the prairies. I hope you have uh, and are having a, a great summer and, and look forward to uh, catching up in person again, uh, perhaps in the fall. So until then, uh, until then have a, a wonderful week and a, and a wonderful uh, summer ahead. Thanks very much for the opportunity. So, all right. Thanks to Sherilyn, Bob, and John for being my guests this week. Now, let's hit the highlights from Retail This Week e-newsletter, biggest retail weekly e-newsletter in Canada, a bit of a companion piece to uh, The Voice of Retail. You can subscribe to that on retailcouncil.org for free. So, in the news, leading off with uh, Koosh Tards in big investment into cannabis company Fire & Flower. Congratulations to everyone at uh, Fire & Flower. Koosh Tard, of course, uh, Laval-based 
a, a mammoth uh, retailer, convenience store retailer, 15,000 stores around the world, uh, I think 9,800 in the U.S. Uh, alone. Uh, many would know them as, uh, as Circle K, uh, but they operate under uh, other brands. So they bought up to, uh, this is from Calgary Business, by the way, they bought up to uh, 9.9% um, ownership in Fire and Flower. And, uh, you know, they, it's not their first uh, venture into cannabis. They, they did a bit of a deal with uh, Canopy early in the early in the year, around February, where they're, they're working together to open up a store in London, Ontario. So uh, I think that's just the beginning of, uh, of clearly what is some uh, interesting development. And I guess it's connected to a bunch of things, um, the opportunity itself, uh, the opportunity to sell uh, vaping products and other products that are connected to uh, cannabis uh, as well. So I think there's some natural synergies. And, of course, the operating horsepower and, and acumen of, uh, of uh, Kushtar, do, uh, again, running 15,000 stores uh, across the world. Uh, Vancouver Port Authority, this from the Globe and Mail, a tenant battle over terminal plans as container capacity worries mount. We've, I think we talked about this before because there was a, a labor dispute uh, in the West Coast and uh, there were big fears that it was going to shut down all the input, all the incoming uh, freight. And there's just not, I, I guess, two issues. One, there's just not enough capacity. And two, all that capacity is owned by a single uh, a single uh, vendor or a single um, enterprise. And when they go out on strike, the whole the whole thing shuts down. So that was uh, identified as a big risk. Um, I think we'll be talking to uh, Greg Wilson from RCC out in Vancouver about that later in the summer, amongst uh, other things, as we as we canvass uh, all the directors there, RCC regional directors, uh, on top issues that they face, whether it's uh, the prairies or uh, in the Maritimes uh, with Jim Cormier or out on the West Coast with, um, uh, with Greg Wilson. LLB enters Canada with plans for stores across the country. So the first store is opening up uh, not too far from, from here, where I'm broadcasting from in, uh, in Oakville, Ontario. And then, uh, according to this from Retail Insider, uh, and they're doing it through a partnership with, uh, with JTEX Group, uh, which is an interesting approach for sure. And according to this uh, great interview in Retail Insider, expand about 20 standalone stores in the, countries, in the country um, within about 10 years and intend to have a shop-and-shop shop in uh, Hudson's Bay locations, which uh, is meaningful, of course, because I think there's almost uh, 90 or just over 90 Hudson's Bay uh, locations still in Canada. Uh, back to cannabis a little bit. Cannabis sales jumped 11 million in May as more stores open. Um, you know, really, it is a factor of the fact that more stores are opening. Uh, not so much in Ontario, though, of course, now uh, we've got another 50 coming uh, later in the year. Still not enough. Um, it interesting uh, note, and this is from Global News in Canada, in Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, and of course we had a great interview a couple episodes ago with uh, Laura Wood from Cannabis New Brunswick. Ninety uh, percent of cannabis sales are in person, and mostly that is attributed to the um, the brand issues. I want to know what I'm buying. Less familiarity with the product, more than anything else. Uh, so that's uh, an interesting uh, development. And again, Stats Canada does a great job of uh, measuring. Uh, cannabis sales. And again, if you're interested in more detail around that, uh, Stats Cannabis, uh, crowdsourcing of the information about uh, rates and what's, uh, you know, what cannabis is going for in the legacy market versus the uh, the legal market. Tune in to my uh, previous episode from the Economist Cannabis Summit with James Trebake, the head of Stats Canada. He talks about that in great and interesting detail. Moving on to our article from CBC, Serious Problem in Edmonton, Big Jump in Shoplifting Offenses in 2018. 
as the according to this article, shoplifting rates increased by 31% in Edmonton. Uh, provincial rate is uh, increased by 22% during the same year. Uh, so we'll look for more information about that. And by the way, if you're in the loss prevention uh, world, uh, don't forget to uh, come to Toronto or join us in Toronto uh, in September where we have the uh, Retail Secure Loss Prevention uh, Conference where we'll be dealing and talking with issues such as that. All right, uh, in Retail Around the World, great article from Katrina Lake, one of my favorite uh, executives and from one of my favorite companies, Stitch Fix. Uh, this from Vox, it's a great interview um, article and interview with uh, with the great Kara Swisher. Uh, and uh, she just talks about, in 10 years, every relevant company will be a tech company. And, and you know, Stitch Fix, uh, if you're not familiar, they, they it's an interesting article. She said, don't call us a subscription business because they are not. They send out a box and, and you keep what you want, buy what you want, send back the rest. So you're not locked into what they send you, uh, but they do a lot of wonderful things with AI and and having people articulate their preferences. Uh, so keep a close eye on that. It's a great interview uh, from Vox with uh, Katrina Lake. Uh, Gen Z has a thing for BOPUS. Uh, interesting. We've seen this. We've talked about this in the podcast before with BOPUS. Uh, that's buy online, pick up and store rates increasing upwards of like uh, 40% uh, year over year in the States. And we continue to see that uh, that idea of, of, uh, of customers going into store to pick up. Uh, that from, uh, where is that from? Uh, that an article from, wait for it, uh, Retail Dive. Um, from CNN, malls are struggling, but stores in the airports are thriving. I don't know. You know, the first part, malls are, are struggling. Uh, well, we we'll guess we'll learn more. I know Craig Patterson's working on the third edition of the Canadian Shopping Mall Report, so we'll get an insight into that. And again, a quick throw to the bricks and mortar retail forum coming up in November uh, be sure and put that one in your calendar if you're in and around the Toronto area. In fact, we're going to do back-to-back retail form, uh, bricks-and-mortar form, sorry, in the morning, and then a cannabis form in the afternoon. So uh, a great uh, opportunity to talk uh, in and around both those areas. An article from uh, from the great Steve Dennis, uh, who's joined us on uh, the main stage at RCC and, and has been in a couple of my podcasts. The toys are back in town. Uh, very good uh, riff. Of course, on uh, on a great classic uh, song, a reimagined Toys R Us returns. Toys R Us, uh, new parent company, which is called True Kids Brands, announced two new stores: one in Houston, one in New Jersey, would open in time for the holidays. Uh, smaller, redesigned, fundamentally different. Uh, so be sure, be sure to check out uh, that article from Steve Dennis uh, as he talks about uh, what's new uh, with Toys R Us uh, and Thin Lizzy, I suppose, as well. Um, Alibaba welcomes U.S. businesses to sell globally on its platform. This is actually a big deal. This from Reuters. The change will open markets up to U.S. US merchants in countries served by Alibaba, including India, Brazil, and Canada. Uh, That's interesting. U.S. merchants previously were only able to buy on Alibaba.com can now also sell to U.S.-based businesses. So, you know, this is a real interesting play uh, against uh, against our friends uh, at Amazon or uh, trying to compete with our friends at Amazon. And, of course, if anyone can do it, uh, in addition to Walmart, uh, Alibaba also at, in the running at that kind of size of scale. So check that article out. Uh, retail news for entrepreneurs, uh, article here on Barnes & Noble, uh, how a, a specialty British indie bookstore owner is going to try and uh, take another run at turning them around. And, um, you know, back to cannabis for the third article. It's been an active cannabis week. Um, I don't know if you've seen them, but uh, Toronto's playing a bit of cat and mouse with the folks who own the Cafe uh, Cannabis uh, brand. These, these are uh, illegal stores, um, and it just delves into who exactly are these people. 
you might be familiar with the picture. If you're not, check it out in uh, in the news or in this uh, newsletter of the, uh, the City of Toronto putting large concrete blocks in the front of the store to block the entrance. And then some sales were done out front. And then, you know, the police showed up and, and the sales associates... Uh, Ran away, leaving the iPads behind with all the information of the customers. So, um, yeah, so we're starting to see for sure the crackdown on the uh, the, uh, the black market, the legacy market, whatever you want to call it, uh, and as more and more legitimate retailers um, follow the rules and open up their stores. Uh, what else? Oh, well, a small thing from the Times columns. Not so small, though. New tool deliver high-tech cancer care close to home for Vancouver Island residents. What's that got to do with retail? Well, if you look, uh, and thanks to Greg Wilson for calling this one out, uh, BC Cancer Foundation raised uh, $6.5 million, and in that $6.5 million, our friends at uh, Thrifty, which is a Sobeys own banner, but really a small uh, small grocery retailer out in uh, Victoria in the West Coast, donated a million. So congratulations. Uh, well done to the folks at uh, Thrifty's. Uh, lastly, spotlight on retail sustainability. A great article from Canadian Retailer removing microbeads uh, about microbeads. Uh, article from Metro, how they're launched an in-store program to fight food waste. That from Canadian Grocer. And uh, last but not least, a good in, a good article on uh, fashion supply chains. So this looks back um, uh, in, in back into the supply chain and, under, and wonders why and looks at uh, the supply chains for apparel, which uh, according to this article... Um, you know, there's a fair bit of waste, so some opportunity uh, to tighten that up. Well, that's a wrap on this edition of The Voice of Retail. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe on Apple iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. Be sure to recommend to a friend or colleague. If you like this episode, please rate it uh, as well. You can also ask your favorite home devices, Amazon Echo, Google Home, to play the most recent edition. I'm Michael LeBlanc, founder and president of M.E. LeBlanc Company, Inc., and you can learn more about me on www.meleblanc.co or, of course, on LinkedIn. Until next time, have a great week.